You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Luke eighteen thirty one. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon, and they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So, as we're walking through Luke, it's here that we say goodbye to Galilee, to the northern region of Israel where the Sea of Galilee is, and Jesus and his disciples make their way south towards Jerusalem for Passover so that Jesus can fulfill his purpose in coming to earth. One thing I love about Luke's gospel is it kind of enunciates what's going on here a few different times. Uh, It says basically that he set his eyes toward Jerusalem with a purpose. In Luke chapter 9, in a couple different verses, one place we see that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In another place, two verses later, it says, his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus had a purpose, even early on in his ministry, Luke chapter 9. He had a purpose, and that was to get to Jerusalem. Not because there was some, you know, great Brooks and Dunn concert going on there, or because there was a carnival, or a great restaurant that he really wanted to take the disciples to, or anything like that. He was going to Jerusalem to be rejected by his friends, rejected by his creation, to be scourged, which is an extremely uh, painful form of whipping, and to be crucified, to be killed, but not just that. He doesn't just leave us hanging with to die, but he also prophesies and speaks many times to the disciples that he's going to rise again as well. Notice how definite these verses are. The words, we are and will. It's going to happen. It's purposed before the foundation of the world. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. From the time that Jesus set aside his privileges of deity and came to the earth in the form of a man in an in in infant's body there in Bethlehem. It's always been the purpose that he would come and die. And as you look at you know, just his whole life, even his birth points to his death and the gifts that he got there in Bethlehem, they all point to his death. But from the beginning of Jesus's life, Even to the end, Jesus was in control. He could have stopped things at any minute and not fulfilled his end of the bargain. And yet he was always obedient, even obedient to the point of death, the death on the cross. And so everything in Jesus's ministry was moving towards this time. But if you look in verse 34, it says, but the disciples didn't understand They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. These 
words that Jesus was prophesying about his betrayal, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, they just didn't compute to the disciples. You know, the disciples were still thinking that as Jesus is the Messiah, he's coming and he's going to set up his kingdom here. And he's going to somehow on our way to Jerusalem, he's going to walk out and find some sort of white Mustang stallion. And he's going to saddle it up and ride it and say, come on, boys, let's go to Jerusalem and pull out a big sword and deliver Israel from the the rule of the Romans. (laughs) And he's going to set up a glorious kingdom here on earth. They were still looking for that. Even when Jesus told him, that's not exactly how my plan's going to work yet. They just didn't register. That's what they were thinking was going to happen the whole time, despite what Jesus told them. To them, Jesus' words were like one of those magic eye pictures. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a magic eye picture, but you know, it's a, it's a picture with all sorts of colors and shapes and designs. And you know, at first when you look at it, you think some kid got crazy with his watercolor set, you know, and just kind of like, whoa, Picasso, I don't even know what's going on here. But as you uh, gaze intently at it, you begin to see a 3D picture come out. In fact, you know, I've never been good at it, but you know, I remember when all my friends in grade school would try and tell me how to do it. You'd have to put your nose up against the picture and then slowly move the picture away and your eyes begin to blur, you know, and pretty soon, you know, this three-dimensional picture just boom, pops out at you. And I've only been able to do it with one of these pictures. I had one hanging up in my bachelor pad when I was in college, you know, and it was the only one I was able to do, so I hung it on the wall, you know. And it was this eagle swooping in through the desert over its nest that was like up on a little like thing up out in the middle of the desert, you know. And I was was like, this is awesome, you know. Well, it took a lot of practice. It hadn't been, it took a while for these things to be revealed to me on how to look at this picture correctly. And the same thing is with the disciples. They just couldn't get it. The interesting thing is, is that from the lips of Jesus, he was constantly telling about his resurrection. And yet uh, the disciples just didn't get it. Even after Jesus died, they weren't looking around waiting for the resurrection to happen. They were out fishing again. You know, they were out for a walk to, you know, uh, towards Tiberias. You know, they were all over the place, totally not three days, three nights waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. They weren't expecting it to happen because they didn't get it. And as we study in a few weeks, we're going to do an in-depth study on the resurrection. Many skeptics begin to say that Jesus never rose from the dead, but that his disciples went and stole Jesus's body away and said that he rose from the dead. Well, one of the reasons that's impossible is because the disciples weren't even expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, even though they'd been told. And when they finally did see the resurrected Jesus, they were terrified as though they'd seen a ghost. They just weren't ready for it. And so the disciples, a work in progress, just like we are, Jesus could tell them things over and over again, and they just don't get it. But that's encouraging to me because I know I'm, I'm, I'm a lot, I'm very similar to these guys. Uh, verse 35 Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. He asked what it meant. So here Jesus is heading out of Galilee down to Jericho. He's going to be cutting over to Jerusalem. And as he's coming into the city, there's these two blind men. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us that 
one of their name was Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was one of the guy's names. And that name means son of honor. It's interesting that his name is mentioned here because, you know, there's a lot of healings that take place in the scripture and, and we don't get the names of people. But here we have Bartimaeus and and there was something special about this guy. The language seems to note Bart as kind of a prominent person or someone that everybody would know there in Jericho. And so as he wondered what the big commotion was about, verse 37, they, so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And so it's an incredible thing here as we see Bartimaeus's faith and his lack of shame uh, by his persistence to be heard here, even when people were saying, shut up, (laughs) specifically the disciples, the people that were going before Jesus, preparing the way. And though these two men were blind, they had more insight spiritually than all of the other people who would normally hang around Jesus. Helen Keller was asked very bluntly one day, wasn't it terrible to be born blind? And she replied, I'd rather be born blind and be able to see with all my heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing at all. You know, blind people tend to have their senses sharpened in all of the other areas because their vision is gone. And these two guys, they were able to sense something spiritual happening. They were able to sense something special about Jesus. Now, this blindness is common in the New Testament because of the poverty and the unsanitary conditions. There was a strong sun and no sunglasses, But the most common form of blindness was from birth. It was called ecthalnia neonatorum, or gonorrhea of the eyes. The mother often carried bacteria in her birth canal, which caught in the mucous membranes of the eye, nose, and mouth of the baby, and it began to spread like crazy. It was virtually untreatable, and after a few days, the eyes would run with pus, and within a few weeks, a baby would be totally blind. But Jericho had all of these claims that they had herbs for treating such a blindness, but it was never to much avail. Now, blind people didn't get out much. In fact, where they usually hung out in the city was at the gates. The gates just happened to be kind of like the news channel of that day. Everybody would talk around the gates and news spread fast. And no doubt the news of this preacher from Galilee had made its way down to Jericho the, the stories of him healing people, the stories of him delivering people from sickness and demons. And no doubt, as Bartimaeus and his friends sat in the gates, their ears perked up a little bit with excitement and with hope. Perhaps Bartimaeus's rabbi would teach on Isaiah chapter 61, the mission of the Messiah. And that mission of the Messiah is so exciting to read about because in Luke chapter 4, there's a really neat account as Jesus would go around to all of the synagogues in Galilee, uh, he would preach and he would come up to the front and he would open up the book and he would begin to preach. And one day he opened up to Isaiah chapter 61 and he began to read there in Luke 4 verse 18, he says this, 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it says he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and all of the eyes of the synagogue were on him. And as everybody was looking at him, he said this, he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Could you imagine being there that day? Jesus is fulfilling prophecy in your midst and you realize that he is the one that the prophets have spoken of. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. Man, my heart would be in my throat. You know, I'd just be so, I wouldn't even, wouldn't be able to yell very loud because of that, but I'd be very excited. And a couple chapters later in Luke chapter seven, John the Baptist is thrown in prison. And, you know, he's probably getting a little worried, like, okay, I'm being thrown in prison for the, you know, my, my testimony of Jesus. And I just want to make sure that Jesus is really the Messiah. And so he sent his disciples out to Jesus. And they said, hey, John wants to know, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we look for someone else? And Jesus said this. He answered them and said, go and tell John the things which you've seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who's not offended because of me. In other words, yes, I am the one that you've been waiting for. Don't lose heart. And so no doubt Bartimaeus and his friend, as they sat at the gate and they've been hearing the news that Jesus is doing all of these things that the prophet spoke about, he's thinking, if this guy ever makes it down here to Jericho and I hear it's him, I am going to jump up and I'm going to just get that man's attention. I've been storing up fireworks in my pocket so that I can light them off, you know, and I mean, I want to be the, I want to be the voice that Jesus turns and says, who's calling my name? That's me. I want to know this guy. And notice that he knew who Jesus was, that son of David, that Messiah. He wanted to meet the Messiah. But the temptation was there to not want to bug God with his prayers, to not want to lift this concern up to the Lord, especially his guys were telling him, be quiet, just just be quiet. Jesus is coming. He's going to set up his kingdom and you just need to just shut up, you know, just just be quiet, you know, and they push him down and they're shoving him back. Much like last week when we studied, the little children tried to come to Jesus and the disciples shoved them down and put them back. And when Jesus saw that, he said, hey, let the little children come to me. And the disciples were humbled and said, sorry, Lord, you know, now they're pushing back the blind people. Get back, get back. What are you doing? Let him go. Oh, sorry again. (laughs) And, um, you know, and so Jesus stood still, verse 40 says. And commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him saying, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And so I love Mark's kind of account of this. It has a little bit more detail. It says that Jesus stood still and commanded that Bartimaeus be brought to him. 
And so the disciples said to the blind man, be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. All of a sudden they've had a little bit of a heart change and all of a sudden now they're kind of nice to him. And it says that this man threw aside his garment and rose and came to Jesus. In other words, he got rid of everything that he'd worked for being a blind guy and scrounging and begging and he just left it there with faith, knowing that the, the next time I turn and come back this way, I'm going to be seeing and I'm going to be able to pick up my my garment. I'm going to be able to pick up my stuff. That was an act of faith on this guy, on this guy's part. Mark's gospel goes on to say, you know, Jesus said, what did you want me to do for you? And I love Bartimaeus here. He says, Rabbi, that I might receive my sight. Or my great one, that I might receive my sight. And when Jesus says, go your way, your faith has made you well. Bartimaeus basically then followed Jesus. In other words, when Jesus says, go your way, Bartimaeus said, your way is my way. I've been a blind guy my whole life. What have I got something else to do? I'm following you, man. And he began to rejoice and to praise God. And it says there, immediately he received his sight in verse 43 and he followed him glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God could you imagine the scene even being another person on this scene and just giving glory to God perhaps you've been part of a healing like that and you've gotten to see the Lord move in that way and just you can't but just let your lips offer up sacrifices of praise to the Lord But it's a beautiful thing here as Bartimaeus, perhaps his friend joined him in following Jesus. Could you imagine what they saw for the next three weeks as they headed towards Jerusalem? Could you imagine the things that they saw as Jesus offered up his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world? But the beautiful thing is, is that they saw spiritually before they saw physically It's been said it's better to be handicapped physically than to be handicapped spiritually. In fact, Fanny Crosby, back in the 1800s, wrote over 8,000 worship songs. Over 8,000 worship songs. You guys know many of them. In fact, when they used to publish her her songs into hymnals, uh, the, the hymnal council used to feel bad because it was mostly Fanny Crosby songs, you know? And, um... She then retired from hymn writing and joined the Crosby show. No, I'm kidding. That's totally a different, like, that was like a century later. Um, but Fanny Crosby uh, was born blind. And one day a man said, Fanny, it's a pity that you were born blind. And she said, let me tell you something. If I had one request from God, and if I could live my whole life over again, my request would be that I would be blind from birth. Why, the man asked, because the first face that will ever grace my sight will be the face of my Savior. Lucky! (laughs) Fanny's so lucky, you know? And so is this blind Bart. Lucky dog. First face he ever sees is the face of the Creator, the face of the Savior. And then he gets to spend three weeks just living it up with Jesus and seeing Jesus and all of His majesty and glory. You know, the skeptics say, I'll believe it when I see it. But with Jesus, it's so reversed. If you'll believe, then you'll see. 
Seeing is believing with Jesus. And if you're a critic of the gospel, you're a critic of Jesus, I encourage you to be reasonable, to be a fair inquirer. We're going to study in a couple weeks just the incredible proof of the resurrection and that the resurrection is the best proved fact in history. We as Christians have a reasonable faith and many genius men in society have bowed the knee to Jesus. Many have set out uh, wanting to disprove Jesus is the Christ and in turn got saved and now they're out proving that Jesus is the Christ. We have a very reasonable faith that if you would just be a, a fair inquirer and just maybe even come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm a doubter. Lord, I'm a critic. Lord, I'm a skeptic. But help me with my unbelief. Help me to believe. I yield an ounce to you, Lord. Show me. I have a mustard seed-sized faith, and the Bible says that you can do something with that. Show me. Boy, fasten your seatbelt, hold on to your hairnet, because Jesus is going to show you. (laughs) Jesus is going to show you himself, and you're going to be blown away. With Jesus, believing is seeing. As we get to Luke chapter 19, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained saying he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A guy walked into a restaurant with an ostrich following him. And pays for his meal. He puts his hand in his pocket and just pulls out the exact amount without even looking in his pocket. After a few days of this miraculous automatic payment, the waitress asks how he does it and what's with the ostrich. The guy says that he found a genie and the genie gave him two wishes. His first wish was that Whenever he had to pay something, he'd be able to just put his hand in his pocket and pull out the exact amount and just flop it down on the counter. Well, what was the second wish? Well, for the second wish, all of my girlfriends have always been short, so I asked for a chick with long legs. Because it was an ostrich. Long legs. When it came to short people jokes, Zacchaeus had heard them all. Zacchaeus, you're so short, you do pull-ups on a staple. (laughs) Or, hey, you're so short, you must hang glide on a Dorito. One of the worst was always, hey, aren't you that guy that poses on my baseball trophy? Get back to work. (laughs) Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was like the Danny DeVito of the Bible. 
And as tough as his life may have been being short, one day of grace changed everything for him as he experienced an incredible call to come to Jesus. And there in verse 5, you read that call. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. It was a striking call to Jesus. And we're going to examine seven features of this call. Number one, the call to Jesus was gracious. It was a gracious call. As you look at verses 1 and 2, Jesus entered and Pastor Jericho Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So uh, Zacchaeus, number one, was from Jericho. There's, there's three ways that the, you know, the high school yearbook team voted him the least likely to be saved, and it was probably because of these. You know, He was from Jericho, which was like another Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Jericho? So he was a Jerichonian, I suppose you would call him. Uh, he was a chief tax collector. Now, this title of chief tax collector, the head of the IRS, is, this is the only place you find this title in Scripture. Jericho was a main toll place for uh, goods passing east to west, and so he, he was making bank on this tax collecting. Now, remember, tax collectors were considered Uh, by the Jews as traitors or as collaborators with the Romans. Many Jews became tax collectors and they were hated. They were outcasts because you're siding with the Romans. And the Romans would give a certain quota to each tax collector. And anything these men could make above and beyond that, they got to slip into their own pockets. And so everyone hated them. They were the scum of the earth. They were like harlots. They were like murderers. And, uh, and they really were isolated when it came to being in the Jewish community. Well, Zacchaeus here, not only is he a tax collector, but he's the chief tax collector. Probably like Paul did saying to Timothy, he'd call himself the chief of sinners, literally. But then also we see that he was rich. And what does that tell you? It tells you he's really been sticking it to those Jewish people and getting every last penny that he can suck off of them. And so this call to Zacchaeus was a gracious call because he had done nothing to deserve. There was no righteousness in him that, was, that would have made God owe him salvation or owe him this call. It was a completely gracious call. And then in verses 3 and 4, it says, And he sought to see who Jesus was but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass by. This is a really neat thing to see in Zacchaeus because there's this level of desperation in him as he jumps and scrambles up into this tree, joining probably many other children who were short in stature. And we all know little kids, when something's going on or a parade's going by, there's a nice climbing tree right there. Of course they're going to be up in it. Well, Zacchaeus joins them. There was desperation in him. And I was looking online to see exactly what a sycamore tree looked like. And it's got a pretty nice solid base. And that base probably goes up without any other branches up until about the top of my hand. And then after the top of that base... There's just a lot of nice branches just coming out of it like that. And so a great tree to sit on if you can get up there. 
So here's a little short guy. Jesus is coming. He runs over. It's not like he's just going to climb up into this tree. I mean, this guy, he's jumping and he's trying to get up into it. Hey, come here. Bend over so I can climb on your back, you know, or give me a boost. Find, you know, let's find something so I can get up here. It took some desperation for this guy to get up in this tree to see Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, verse five, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. So this call was also a personal call. He calls Zacchaeus by name out of all of the other people in the crowd and all of all the other little boys and cats up in the tree. He looks at Zacchaeus and says, you Zacchaeus come down. You guys, a call to salvation is a personal call. Perhaps he's calling your name today. By name, he's saying, hey, come down here and be with me. I want to know you. Salvation is, is, it's a very personal thing. It's not based upon whether your grandparents were Christians or whether your government is Christian, or you knew a guy who was a Boy Scout once. That doesn't have anything to do with it, you know? Salvation is between you and the Lord. You and your name between the Lord and His holy name. The call to Jesus was personal. The call to to Jesus here required humility. As He says, Zacchaeus, come down. Come down. It takes humility for us to come down to Jesus And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For those who realize that in and of their spirit, they have nothing good to offer the Lord, but they are spiritually bankrupt. They need someone who is rich in spirit to impute into them righteousness. And Jesus does just that. But you have to humble yourself first and you have to, you have to recognize and you have to confess I'm poor in spirit. Philippians chapter two, verse 10 tells us that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess him to be Lord. It takes humility to bow the knee. It takes humility to bow and to confess somebody else to be Lord. Now you can either do that now while you're on the earth and Jesus is saying, Hey, let me be your Lord, bow your knee and humble yourself to me. And I'll give you so much incredible salvation and grace and Oh, it'll be incredible. Or you can die never having bowed the knee to me, having rejected me your whole life. And then you're going to bow the knee to me in eternity, but it will be a forced bow. You're going to realize who I am and you're going to bow the knee and you're going to declare me to be Lord, but you're not going to mean it from your heart in a good way. You're going to be compelled to do it and obligated to do it. And then you're going to be separated from me for eternity, cast into outer darkness and separated from God. You know that here on earth, while things are pretty bad, God is still holding all things together. It's his goodness that makes this world a place that we can even bear to live. Imagine what a place would be like where God isn't even holding things together, where there is nothing good. It's complete and utter separation from God for eternity. That place would be hell. And a a person in hell isn't going to regret never having received Jesus, but they're going to have hardened their heart throughout their whole life and never will have wanted Jesus. And they're not going to want them now that they're in hell. 
but they're just going to wallow in, in, their, in their hatred for the Lord, but they're separated from him anyways. The call to Jesus requires us to bow our knee, to come down. James tells us that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if you'll just humble yourself today and just say, Jesus, be my Lord, forgive me of my sins, help me to follow you. That you'll be saved, but it takes humility. You'll have grace poured out upon you. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. This call demanded a prompt action. That today, Zacchaeus, not tomorrow, not don't go deal with your stuff and then come back later and we can hang out or maybe later when you finally figure out how to climb out of that tree, we can hang out. Get down here right now, immediately. Come to me, Zacchaeus. And so often as an invitation to come to Jesus is put forth, people say, I just need to deal with some stuff. I just need to get through this season in my life. Just, there's this season, it's very pleasurable to me. And I know that if I come to Jesus, that I'm not going to enjoy this season. I'm not going to be able to do this season. So later, I'll, be, I'll do it later. I'll come to Jesus later. It's been said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's not about what you plan to do with Jesus. It's what have you done with Jesus today? God's call on you is not for tomorrow. It's for today. And that's why the author of Hebrews says that today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed this afternoon. You don't know what's going to happen, but your life could end like that today. And so let's, let's kick it up a notch and say, not even today is the day of salvation. Right now is the moment of salvation. Today, are you hearing his voice? This moment, are you hearing his voice? Then bow the knee of your heart and come to him. Zacchaeus, come down here immediately. I must stay at your house today. The call was of a heroic invasion. Jesus was invading this man's life. I want to come into your house. There was a necessity for Jesus to come into Zacchaeus' house. In the book of Acts, you read of many different people. The Philippian jailer, Lydia, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, Cornelius. And that when these men and women met Jesus, they took Jesus back to their house with them and their whole house got saved and their whole house was baptized. Their whole house lived for Jesus because Jesus wants to come to our home. He doesn't want us to just be Sunday churchy, churchy churchintons, you know, he wants us to be just passionate and have a love relationship with him that it's the same at church as it is at home, as it is when you're, you know, doing your hobbies and doing your work. Jesus wants to come into your home. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and comes and opens that door, I'll come into his heart and I'll dine with him and he with me. He's knocking on the door of hearts today. Story is told of an artist named Holman Hunt who painted a picture of this verse. Jesus knocking on the door of a man's heart. Some of you have probably seen that picture. So the picture has a, a door of a man's heart and Jesus is standing there knocking. And that special day that the painting was unveiled, 
One of Holman's friends came to him and said, Holman, you've made a great error in your painting. You forgot to put a doorknob on the outside of the door. And Holman said, no, that was actually intentional. There's no doorknob on the outside of a person's heart. The door of a person's heart has to be opened from within. And so if you want to be saved today, you need to answer the knocking door. You need to open the door from your heart. Jesus isn't going to get the battering ram out and bash the door down. Zacchaeus, let me in, you know, or bust out this skill chainsaw and chop the sycamore tree down. You're not coming, buddy, you know. But, you know, the knock is consistent. And if you hear my knock today, open the stinking door. Let me come in. And if you open that door, he'll come in, he'll sit down, and he'll dine. We all love it when people spontaneously drop by, don't we? You know, it's like people are, hey, I'm going to come by real quick. Like, oh, gosh, what do I have around my house? You know, it's like, uh, okay, is it clean? Does the floor need to be vacuumed? You know, are my underwear sitting around somewhere? That, you know, somewhere's going to run into them, you know? Uh, you know, I just got to make sure everything's okay, you know? But imagine Jesus, the Savior, is like, hey, I'm going to stop by your house today. Oh, gosh, you know, and not to mention you just got saved. So it's like, what posters do I have up on my wall? What movies are sitting out by the TV? What websites have just been visited on my browser? You know, oh, gosh, could you give me three hours? I'll clean everything up. I just need three hours. I love what Spurgeon says. Oh, what affection there was in Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house. Poor sinner. My master is a very affectionate master. He will come into your house. What kind of a house have you got? A house that you've made miserable with your drunkenness? A house that you've defiled with your impurity? A house that you've defiled with your cursing and swearing? A house where you are carrying on an ill trade that you'll be glad to get rid of? Christ says, I will come into thine house. He wants to come into your house. He wants to save you and change you. Husbands and wives that were once grabbing each other's throat, nearly killing each other, begin to bow their knee together in prayer. You know, bookshelves that had witchcraft and sorcery potions, you know, now have the scriptures and devotionals. He changes us. And just as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord together. The call was one of heroic invasion. And man, we need the Lord to come in and invade in a good way and take out those things that the enemy has as footholds in our lives. I must stay at your house today. This call is an abiding call. Jesus wants to stay there. For so many as Jesus is, uh, the gospel is given to you, we usher him in the front door and out the back or maybe give him a glimpse into the window But Jesus wants to abide. He wants to dwell. He wants to stay. And John chapter 15 verse 5 is a classic passage. You can flip over there. Classic passage on us abiding with Jesus and Jesus abiding with us. He says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. 
By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. So many people, when they're new converts, the the zeal for Jesus just fades away like a brand new black sweatshirt that you've washed five times. All of a sudden, it's more of a light gray sweatshirt. That's not how the faith is supposed to be. Our faith is to be increasingly more intimate and awesome with Jesus. Jesus wants to abide in us, not come in and then fade out and kind of leave like an unwanted guest. I must stay at your house today. The call was one of necessity. I must. Your eternity hangs in the balance here. When Nicodemus came and asked Jesus, what must a man do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again yet? There's no if, ands, or buts. There's not other ways. There's not certain ways that you can work. There's not other gods. You must be a new creation in Christ. And the minute you receive him into your life, he, he lets that old person of you die. And behold, he raises you into new life with him. He makes you a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. But it must happen if you're to inherit eternal life. You must be born again. Jesus must come in to your heart and then the call was of striking effect it affected Zacchaeus and as you read the rest of this story you can observe the immediate fruit in Zacchaeus's life look at verse six so he made haste or he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully Look at this first fruit of what's going on in Zacchaeus' life. He's full of cheer. That's what joy is, full of cheer. You know, my wife was a a cheerleader in high school and then went to Oregon State and was a cheerleader. And when we first started dating, she was cheering there at Oregon State. It was so fun to watch her cheer, you know. It's just like, you know, they just, it's like, you know, and then we'd walk out and all the cheerleaders are like, you know, but not Lindsay. She's always, but, uh, you know, That's what Jesus does to us. It's just like, oh, I'm overwhelmed with joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 says. Like we studied a couple weeks ago in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, joy is not happiness. You see, happiness is based on circumstances, what you have, what you don't have, what you're going through in life. But joy is not based on circumstances. Paul rejoiced in his chains, Philippians says. He was in his chains as he was in prison. Hebrews tells us that as we're getting disciplined by God and chastened by the Lord, to go through that with joy. Because it means someone loves us when someone corrects us. Like a loving father corrects his children. I always tell Russell that. Russell, I know I'm spanking you now, but just do it. Let's go through this with joy, right? That's what the Bible says, you know. It's, it's never quite that pleasant. But, you know, Peter tells us, count it all joy when you go through various trials. That's totally different from what the world says. The world says you need to just be happy and keep getting things and makes you more happy and more happy. You might say, well, Rory, I'm a Christian. I know that I have Jesus in my heart, but I just struggle with a lack of joy in my life. 
What, what's going on? Well, may I suggest to you the key to joy. The key to joy is J-O-Y. Jesus, and then others, and then yourself. He needs to be the first. He needs to be the principal thing. And if you're living all out for him, I guarantee you're going to see a, an influx of joy into your life. But to make things better, serve others. Quit thinking about yourself. So often the key to joy for us is Jah. Jesus, yourself, and then others. That's, no, we need to serve others. And the more we serve others, the more joy we're going to have in our lives. There was fruit happening here in Zacchaeus' life. And you know, he didn't even have to try. He didn't even have to try. These things just immediately, naturally started happening. You might think, gosh, I just don't think that I can become a Christian because it's just going to be too hard to like clean my life up and stuff. You guys, that's like cleaning a fish before you catch it. You know, that's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, I've tried it a few times, and I'm pretty good at it, but... Just kidding, I can't even catch at the little trout pond over here for the kids. But anyways, uh, you know, bearing fruit and, and having a changed life, it's something that just comes natural to someone who's been born again. You know, your apple tree out in your backyard doesn't wake you up in the middle of the morning, in the middle of the night going, Aah! you know? You know, you're throwing your shoe at it in the middle of the night. Shut up out there! I don't even like apples, you know. <laughs> it's just a natural thing. You know, I'm here in the wintertime. I'm an apple tree, you know. And then in the springtime, all of a sudden there's leaves. Well, where'd that come from? I don't know. It just happened, you know. Then you look over again and all of a sudden there's blossoms. And then all of a sudden there's full on fruit, you know. It just happens like that. It's so natural. That's what Jesus does in us. It's incredible to see just... You know, you see someone one week and they're, they're doing good. And then the next week you just see the Lord just growing in them tremendously. And joy is just, just one of the fruits of the spirit that's on their vine. Had a guy come into me on Thursday last week and he was brought into me. Uh, he was going through a, a very difficult situation in his life and he wasn't a believer. And his life was really hard right now. And I just said, man... I can't like guarantee that your life's going to get better or that this thing's going to work out in a good way. But the issue right now is what's going to happen to you after your life? And I, and I laid for him out salvation and his need for Jesus and that Jesus will walk through these trials with him and he'll begin to work these things out for good in his life. And this guy ended up uh, accepting Jesus there in my office, and it was just such an incredible time. And the minute we said amen, I looked at him, and he had the appearance of a new creation. I mean, he walked into that office just beat down and just, you know, full of sin and just, oh, just, it was not good. But the minute we said amen, I looked at him, and he was just, oh, he had new breath in his lungs. He had a joy on his face. And I've met with him a couple times this week already and discipling him. And he's just, just new creation. The old guy's no longer there. He's a new creation in Christ. The call to come to Jesus has a striking effect on our lives. Verse seven, but when they saw it, they all complained saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. <laughs> 
They're all frustrated with Jesus because of his love towards the sinners. And this story is just another example of how Jesus's kingdom reaches out to the outcast. The worst of the worst are sought after. The carnal of the most carnal are sought after. The Jeffrey Dahmers, if they'll repent and come to Jesus, their sins will be washed away and they'll be made new creations in Christ. That's the purpose that Jesus came, the end of this section tells us, to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. He told the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need the doctor. And I've come to heal the sick. It's an attitude like this that got Jesus started on the parables of the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep and the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. You know, the story of the prodigal son isn't just for the prodigals out there who went away and spent their dad's fortune in sin and came back and, oh, please take me back. That's great and everything, but you guys know one of the prodigal sons was the son that stayed there the whole time. He had a bad attitude when the sinful brother came back to repentance and got a new life. We're to be joyous when, when people come out of their sin, no matter how sick and twisted that sin might be, we're to reach out to them with open arms and welcome them home. There's another tax collector like Zacchaeus that Jesus reached out to. His name was Levi, but after he got saved, his name became Ben, (laughs) Matthew. I don't really think anybody said Ben. I'm kidding. But you know, he's sitting there at his tax table and he's 20, 40, 60, 80, and he's got the little like slide rule, you know, and he's figuring it all out. And Jesus just walks by. He's like, hey, follow me. And it says that Levi followed him. He left the tax table and he went and he followed Jesus. And then he went and he took Jesus into his home and he brought all of his other tax collecting friends and they had a big tax collecting party with Jesus. And the Pharisees again were so were so angry with Jesus. And that's when he says, you know, I haven't called the the, you know, the, the people that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need me. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so guys, don't be afraid to, you know, use caution and use tactics, but to go where the sinners are and to reach out to them. Take a brother along with you so you won't be tempted and fall. But, you know, I'm encouraged to read the Couch's blog and, you know, and they have a a ministry where they go into the pubs and, you know, they share the gospel in the pubs. And just so many people, that just disgusts me. I can't believe that. I didn't say they were getting drunk in the pubs, (laughs) you know. They were preaching the gospel to the people that are at a place where they're desperate for anything to fill that void in their life. So right now, I'm just kind of putting out some feelers to see what the reaction was on that. Because maybe, we'll, I don't know, maybe we will. We'll see. We're praying for a vision, right? Maybe the Lord will do something like that here. So they were very bummed out that Jesus would go into Zacchaeus's house. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Here we see a heart of repentance in Zacchaeus, a changed life, a 180 degree turn from the path that he was on. You know, last week we studied another rich man, 
He came and fell at the feet of Jesus and said, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And it came down, Jesus said, to get rid of your money and your possessions that are an idol to you and forsake all of that and follow me with all your heart. And that man went away sad because he had great possessions and he didn't want to end with it. Here's Zacchaeus. He's rich and he realizes that something's better out there than having money. It's having a personal relationship with Jesus. And so Zacchaeus is very glad here. I give half my goods to the poor, half my income from now on will go to the poor. You know, Jesus didn't ask Zacchaeus to do this, but it was something that the Holy Spirit convicted Zacchaeus' heart of. And he gladly gave up these things to Jesus. Like Romans tells us, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And the more we know Jesus and the more we have a love relationship with him, the more glad we are to get rid of those things that might be holding us to this world. Whatever it is, the Lord will show you in that perfect time. But we get to give it up for his kingdom. And then he goes on to say, and whatever I've taken, you know, I'll I'll restore it fourfold. You know, this is much more than the usual requirement of the law. The law said if you stole something or did something dishonest like that, you just restore what was taken and then a fifth of whatever was taken. When it came to the stealing of an animal or if you discharged your gun and killed your neighbor's cow, you know, then you, you then you gave fourfold of the cow. You gave four cattle back. Well, this guy just has such a heart to give and to do the extra, to go the extra mile. His actions here, don't you see the actions in Zacchaeus's life? Comes down off the tree. He's joyful. He gives everything he has back to the Lord. His actions reveal his repentance. And that his repentance and his faith are genuine. Let's look over in James chapter two. We're almost done. James chapter two, verse 14. James 2.14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out on another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, 
So faith without works is dead also. Now this can be kind of a confusing passage because the scriptures clearly teach that we're saved by faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And yet James tells us that after our salvation, our faith will have accompanied works. It's been said that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. We're not saved by our good works, but we're saved for good works. It's a natural fruit of repentance. It's a natural fruit of salvation to want to be obedient and want to serve the Lord and want to give. And here in Zacchaeus's life, we see evidence of a changed man by his works. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness the minute he believed. But it didn't just stop there, you know, like, well, I'm good, you know, and he just goes on with his normal life. But then soon you see evidence of obedience in his life. He's offering up his son on the altar in obedience to the Lord. And it just shows this guy is justified. He has a life that has a pattern of obedience to the Lord and works that are glorifying to him. So incredible fruit in Zacchaeus's life, even on the first day. Verse nine, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. You know, Zacchaeus may have been Jewish, but believe it or not, he wasn't a son of Abraham until this day. Galatians tells us that those are only children of Abraham that are children by faith. John the Baptist was out baptizing people and here come the Pharisees. And, you know, very Jewish, very, very, very Jewish. And John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers. Why don't you just come down here and right now and repent and get baptized? And he could read their thoughts. I don't need to get baptized or I don't need to get saved because I'm a child of Abraham. And he says, and don't even say you're a child of Abraham because if God wanted to, he could raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. It's not the genealogical uh, heritage that God was concerned with. It's the heritage through faith. You know, and, and we've been reading, I'm um, discipling again, we're reading through Romans. And there's just that call that God doesn't want just a bunch of circumcised people in the flesh walking around. He says what he wants is your heart to be circumcised. And the minute you come to Jesus, the fleshly part of your heart is cut away and you're made a new creation. And that's when you're likened to the household of Abraham. Gentiles can be more children of Abraham than Jews can be. And this day, Zacchaeus, he's really made a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's his goal the whole time. His whole goal was to look up into that tree and to see a lost wee little man and to come into his heart and to come into his house and to do a work in his life and change his life. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.